is Faith Revisited. Welcome to the podcast. On Faith Revisited, we'll talk about our own church as we're constantly trying to adapt to an ever-changing world as a downtown historic church. We'll talk about United Methodist Matters as our denomination faces an exciting and uncertain future. We'll explore church leadership in the 21st century. And we'll talk to different faith leaders about their perspectives of religion today, how we can be more authentic, stop alienating people, and how faith is more important than ever to connect us to God and each other. Hey, maybe we'll touch on a topic that speaks to exactly where you are in your faith. We won't know until we try, right? Let's do it. Welcome to the Faith Revisited podcast. Today, there is a very exciting conversation that Ben had with Len Wilson, who is an author. And um, his I love how his website says storyteller strategist. So he's um, the director of innovation and strategy at a very large church in Plano, Texas. And he has spent his career um, helping churches with innovation and um, figuring out, he said in his interview, he was at a church in 1995 when they put up a screen and that changed the game for, they were the first one to put a screen up in church. Yeah. And, and so a fun tie in there, cause you're in the small group studying his book, but that was Mike Slaughter's church that he was oh. at. So he worked for Slaughter in his mid twenties. Um, at, 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 and I forget, he said his title in the, um, in the episode, but it's like director of online ministry or yeah. something. And yeah, he, he, he told stories off the air about Slaughter and um, you know, how it really kind of formed him as a leader. But Lynn has spent his career at, just just dabbling in creativity he that that has been his calling and he's done it in many places and he does it in consultant work i first found lynn because he created a few years ago um this annual list of the fastest growing churches in united methodism okay and so every year in like you know january february you you know lynn wilson's list is coming out and you're always curious to see what the fastest growing churches in the country Uh are um, but but Lynn has written numerous books. He talks about a little bit of that, and and is just um, a very widely known um, published thinker. Yeah, you mentioned in the when in your conversation with him, you asked him, "What are you optimistic about? Mm-hmm. Um, what are things that you are looking forward to?" Knowing a lot of the conversation happened around the crisis, we're in the pandemic, all that, um, and he was talking about a Harvard Business Review. Um, article that he read about a small eye and big eye innovation and how 86% of us are doing very small refinements and in innovation and they lead about 14% growth. So very, a lot of time is spent on it and not a lot of growth. Whereas the ones that use 14% of their, wow, I'm saying this wrong, 14%, there's a lot of numbers and he mentioned that he made a joke in there too, but 14% is spent on the massive disruptive and extreme innovation and that yields crazy results. And you loved those facts also. Oh, oh, I was eating it up. And and it's so it's so applicable whether you're in the church world or in the business world, it mm-hmm. works. And the great example that he used is um the airplane industry. 
the jet you know, engine. The jet engine that after World War One, I, I believe, um, the the game was changed with airline travel um, because we had the jet engine. But if you think about planes and really how they function, I mean, other than like you know these top of the line military planes for you know war purposes and surveillance not much has really changed in, you know, a hundred years in, in airline. And it's because the companies, you know, they continue to do the little eye innovation, you know, seat sizes and access to Wi-Fi and, you know, comfort all these other things. Level, yeah, yeah. Comfort levels and, and, and they've forgotten. Yeah. And I almost wanted to say, you know, well, that's why when the Jetsons promised us our, you know, flying into space. Yeah. Yeah. It should have been here by now, but, but the airplane industry has just, you know, focused on tweaking instead mm-hmm. of revolutionizing what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and that makes me wonder, you know, what is that big innovation and disruption that's going to happen within churches now? Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer yet. You know, we're all making these shifts and is the shift to a virtual church, is that considered a disruption or, you know, it's just, I don't know if there, I don't know if that's happened yet or if we're still figuring it out or it just, it really got me thinking on that. Yeah, I think time will tell on that. And Lynn and I have a good time talking about possibilities. Um, one thing that I've read, just an extra little tidbit is, a, I mean, at least in the last hundred years, I mean, really since the Spanish flu, church has not seen this kind of interruption in mm-hmm. its life. You know, we've gone through wars, we've gone through disasters, we've gone through terrorism, but we have not seen the life of the church, the week in and week out in-person worship be affected Holton. like this. It, I mean, absolutely at a standing halt. Um, it's going to, time will tell if this is going to be that big disruption. But one article I read recently that's fascinating is asking whether or not churches, we've always thought of ourselves as physical locations with virtual reach. Mm-hmm. Well, what if the challenge before the church is to flip the paradigm to become a virtual church with physical locations? Mm-hmm. The example of that is Amazon. Mm-hmm. Amazon is the on-time, online retailer who changed the game. And what's Amazon doing now? They're putting pop-up stores. Yeah. And so to understand yourself as maybe even your primary or at least an equal reach being in the online world is going to shift the paradigm. Lynn, we open up, and, and I've read this numerous times, and he hit the nail on the head that a crisis, it doesn't reveal things. It accelerates things. And, and I'm sorry to say, but a lot of churches are going to close because of this. A lot of churches are hanging on month to month. Um, A lot of churches will not bridge the gap in the challenge of innovating and will close as a result. Now, you know, that that just accelerates the reality that those churches were stuck anyways. So the challenge for church leaders is to really be thinking ahead. Yeah. And one of the questions that I want to end on that you know, it's something that I think everyone should kind of marinate on and think about it because there's not a clear answer for it. But he asked the question, how do we meet spiritual hunger? You know, this is going to, when we're all coming back and when we're all innovating and trying new things, you know, there's the spiritual hunger that you mentioned, Ben. And, you know, what are we going to do to meet that? And I think that's something we need to continue to keep at the forefront of our mind that society is changing, what the church looks like is changing, um, but their hunger for spirituality is there, and maybe even more so than was before. Um, yeah, and and Lynn even talks about it and viewing it in the holistic way, also, yeah. where it's not just about saving souls 
it, it, it's about the whole person's life mm-hmm. and their whole life and, and yeah. how churches can, can come alongside them as, as we sort of live through this um, crisis and recovery together. Absolutely. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lynn Wilson. If you go to www.faithrevisitedpodcast.com, we'll have all the show notes. We'll link to his website and blog, as well as his author page and some other links based on what they talked about on this interview. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. So we appreciate the five stars. And uh, thanks so much. I hope you have a great day. We'll see you soon. Enjoy the interview. Hello, Faith Revisited podcast listeners. This is Ben, and I have a very special guest uh, with me today. Uh, Lynn Wilson uh, is a a jack of many trades. Uh, Lynn is an active blogger. He's an author. Um, He's a creativity specialist. He has uh, worked in a number of capacities uh, for churches and is just an overall guru in leadership and creativity in the church world. And so, Lynn, we welcome you today to our podcast. Thanks, Ben. I'm happy to be a part. Looking forward to a good conversation. So I was telling uh, Lynn before the um, before we started uh, recording the interview that that most of the time I come to to these interviews and I have a list of questions and we're going to go down it. But we are in the midst of a crisis right now, and I honestly didn't know where to begin on asking you questions. So I thought let's just riff this thing. So, Lynn, we're in a pandemic. What are you thinking about in terms of the life of the average local church right now? Uh, Crisis is an accelerator, Ben. I think what happens in crisis is that it takes trends that have already been moving and it puts them into overdrive. And so churches that are um, struggling with attendance, uh, with vitality, you know, financially perhaps, they're struggling more. Churches that were growing are perhaps uh, growing more. Same for businesses as well. Um, so it, it's interesting to watch trends accelerate. Um, the, the, a lot of what's happening uh, now are I see as the fruition and um, the realization of conversations that have been happening for years in terms of where the church might be going. Uh, for example, uh, in the digital space, you know, there's been a movement uh, there in the last couple of months that's just been incredible to watch uh, and all the innovation that's been happening. So, uh, yeah, that's just one example. I think what's happening is we're seeing an acceleration of things that have already been moving uh, in already you know, in, in place. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, in many ways, we got caught flat-footed uh, with this. I mean, the whole world did, right? But, but I think yeah. you're right. You know, a few weeks into this, we're seeing um, – exceptional companies in the business world are learning to adapt very quickly. I I just last week um, attended the Orange Conference. And, you know, Orange is is Reggie Joyner and and that whole um, um, North Point kind of offshoot crew. They literally, in less than a month, took a two-day conference, put it fully online, um, you know, published, edited, all this. It was absolutely unreal, and they did it in less than a month. So companies that, yeah. that are really healthy and innovative to begin with, I think you're right. They're, they're adapting quickly. Those of us who, are, who are, are struggling a little bit to be innovative, I mean, it's taken us a little bit longer on the uptake. What are you hearing from church leaders right now? You know, I think for the first, um, oh gosh, I don't know, but maybe six weeks or so, four to six weeks, 
there was this kind of, uh, oh no, kind of immediacy. You know, we, we've got to come up with immediate solutions for worship. And it's amazing how necessity is a mother invention, right? So you see some innovations happening, churches that would never have even considered being online. Uh, now they're doing it. In many cases, they're, they're flourishing and doing it very well. So I think we, we've gone through this kind of immediate um, innovative cycle, and now we're settling into this really interesting kind of uh, middle road where we don't really know what's going to happen, how long we're going to be shut down, or how long we're going to be shut down to what capacity or percentage. Uh, and so there's we've gone from innovation to strategy in the sense that we've, we've immediately done several things, and now we're beginning to have to do some serious strategic thinking about what we're going to begin to do short-term and long-term. And, and strategy is not really necessarily something that the church is very familiar with. Uh, there's strategy is there's specific things involved uh, in strategy. For one, strategy means uh, trade-offs. So when you uh, are thinking strategically, you're actually making decisions about what not to do as much as you are about what to do. And the church, that's hard for us to do because we want to be able to reach everybody, do everything, speak to everyone. And uh, in order to be able to do this well, we're having to actually think about what to say no to. Um, so that, that's one challenge. Another challenge of strategy. Um, so my dad is a retired uh, colonel, U.S. Army. He served two tours in Nam. And he, he taught me when I was a kid about strategy and said that, in the military, you have what's called phased strategy. So uh, the idea there being that you have a pretty good sense. You might have 90% of the data you need in order to do phase one. Uh, you might have 50% of the data you need to do phase two. So you have to make two options for the second phase based on what happens on the first phase. So we're having to do a lot of kind of like phase strategy. So we'll say, gosh, if we go back to live worship in a month, then we're going to do X, Y, Z. But what if we can't go back to live worship for six months? Then we'll have to do ABC, you know? And so this, this kind of strategic thinking that we're doing is something that um, I think a lot of churches are doing right now. And it's something that's kind of new, new muscles uh, for a lot of us. What, what do you think is, is among, and you can say more than one, but what are among some of the biggest mistakes we could make right now as church leaders? Where are the traps? Here in Texas, I'm in North Texas, uh, so um, just for the reader's sake, I, and I'm a full-time uh, staffer at a large Methodist church in Plano. Uh, my title is Director of Innovation and Strategy uh, there on the staff. And so we're dealing with Texas rules. And Governor Abbott here in the state of Texas has just launched uh, phase one, he's about to launch phase two. I think this either, uh, I'm going to get this wrong. I think either this past Friday, this coming Friday, he's opening salons and barbers. And so, you know, we haven't opened up the church. In fact, our, our bishop has said, you know, no live worship through May, which we think is wise. Um, but how do you talk about that to a lay person in your congregation when they're like, well, geez, I can go get my hair cut. How come mm -hmm. I can't come to church? You know, and so there's this kind of, weird place we're entering into and a lot of, a lot of it is uh, a messaging uh, need. You know, Ben, we talked about um, when we were together in person there um, at that conference a few months ago, we talked about messaging a lot. And I, I think 
messaging is a big part of what's going to be happening here moving forward in the short term because we have to not only make decisions, but we have to be able to communicate what those decisions are in, in such a way that, um, that we don't do harm to people and that they understand uh, the motivation because we have a higher bar than a, than a business, clearly. You know, uh, people are looking to us for not only um, making money, but they're looking to us for the kind of ethical guidance. Uh, so it's a good opportunity for us as church to, to really make a good witness, but we have to be very careful about how we're doing it. Yeah, and, and, and it's easy. My, my therapist had this, I did a, a tele-session with him recently, and he had this great phrase that I've used a lot. We have all this free-floating anxiety, you know, just as people and as church leaders, it's really hard to not let that free-floating anxiety just vomit all over everything we're saying and doing online with our church people, you know, um, they, you know, they say I can congregate at Walmart on Sunday morning, but I can't come to church. And it's really easy as pastors to say, yeah, that sucks. I think we should just come on back. And the reality is we can't. And then once we do, what's church going to look like? I mean, yeah, yeah, where do you see us going in the, in the, I mean, I know this can change any day, but in the coming two years, um, church life's going to be different. Don't you think? I don't think that we're going to be able to live an unrestricted life for a long time to come, Ben. And until we globally reach herd immunity or we have a functioning vaccine that everybody has taken, we will not feel, we will not be medically in a position to, nor will we feel comfortable psychologically living an unrestricted life. What's happened in in Texas here? is that the first phase was uh, restaurants and um, businesses. And so my family and I, I've got four kids. Uh, youngest is 12, oldest is 18. My wife had her birthday last Friday night on the first, and we've not been out of the house except to take walks, you know, since it started. And so we're like, well, let's, let's try to go celebrate your birthday. The restaurants will be open. Let's see what happens. So we went to a restaurant and we didn't know what to expect. We thought it might be packed since it was day one. But nobody was there, Ben. It was a ghost town. And we had like, we had waiters at every beck and call, you know, wearing masks, waiting on us because no one was there. And I think that's the vast majority of people. There's a psychological barrier right now that they're not, they're not ready to do. And long term, how that plays out is going to be fascinating to watch because I don't think we're going to be able to live an unrestricted life for at least 18 months, maybe more. So what does that look like as we, um, as we adapt to a world in which we neither have herd immunity nor we have a full vaccine? Um, and that's the, that's the question that we need to be asking as a church right now. If we, do we create live worship with restrictions or do we not? And if we do have live worship with restrictions, then what, does that, what are those restrictions and what does that look like? Uh, and what are people comfortable with? Because that's ultimately the question here. It's it's a psychological question as much as it is a medical question. Yeah, I, I just yesterday there was a webinar that the American Choral Directors Association put on, and they they had you know infectious disease specialists and doctors and, and all kinds, of, and they basically said there's no congregational singing for the next year until until we reach like a ninety five percent you know, where we beat back this disease or there's a vaccine because what separates, and I'm I'm terrible at this medical stuff. My wife's a, she's the medical person, but 
this disease, unlike H1N1 and these other flus, this disease uniquely lives in aerosols. And we create aerosol when we sing that forcing of the air out. And mm-hmm. so instead of like the models we see where the six feet, you know, the, the germs jump from me to you, but they go down yeah. aerosols, like creating this fog of germs that can live. And, and it's devastating for choir directors to, to say, we're not, we're, we may not be able to have choir for the next year. You know, how we do worship so, is going to be so different. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. So knowing that you don't want to do nothing for, the next year plus concern what's already been done in the first six weeks alone you have to assume that we're going to create new innovations to fill that gap and so by the time we've done that we're going to have over a year of living into whatever the new thing is it's kind of like you know a hegelian philosophy you have you have the thesis you have the antithesis and then as a result of that you have a new synthesis that emerges and i wonder if that's what's going to happen here so we we have the old way we have the new virtual way. And then when we're finally able to get together again, we're not going to go back to the old way. It's going to be a new synthesis, some kind of combination of, of the two that have emerged with the, you know, what's going to about to emerge. And that's what's so fascinating to me about this. I, but I pause for a minute. I've got to tell the audience, you're now speaking my love language with the Hegelian philosophy. I'm just going to tell you, dude, like I'm locked in with you right there. That was so good. And, and it's true because I, you know, I think in many ways when we're able to be back in person however restricted we may be, people will be hungry to come back. And and I think online fatigue is real. I think people are tired of it. That said, you know, I, I, I read one blog post somewhere that said, you know, the debate over online worship, you know, whether we have it or not, it's over. The last word's been spoken. And that last word was COVID. Yes. Online worship is, is here. Now what, how that lives into the life of the church um, is yet to be determined. What do you see as maybe the, some of the future implications of online worship and how it functions in our churches? My first book was called the wired church. Uh, Ben, I wrote it when I was on staff at a large Methodist church in Ohio that had grown rapidly and installed a screen in the sanctuary back in 1995. And that screen was a last-minute decision by that pastor and the lay leadership of that church that had huge unforeseen implications on the culture and life of that congregation. They had been working with the screen for six months. I graduated from seminary. I was 24 years old. I went to the church to be the um, electronic media minister was my title, 1995, age 24. And they hired me, they said, to get the projector and focus. And so we started experimenting with this idea of a screen in the sanctuary, which had never been done before. And so we were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And after three years, I wrote this book called The Wired Church. And I talked about how uh, that when you have a screen in the sanctuary, that the medium shapes the message. And I don't like the McLuhan idea that the medium is the message. I think that's too reductionist. But I I do think that the medium shapes the message. And you have to adapt what you're doing. And, and one way that people can understand it is, is with literacy. So you spend many, many years in school learning how to, to write well. First, you learn to read well, then you learn to write well. And, and your ability to write is, is synonymous with your ability to communicate well, right? Does that make sense? So it's the better yeah. you can write, the better you can communicate your ideas. In a visual world, as much as you have literacy, now you have what we might even call graphicacy or visual literacy. Um, and so your ability to communicate well is dependent on your ability to understand the visual language. And so now, 20 years after that, I wrote that book, we're, we're seeing this living out mm-hmm. real time. 
because people are having to learn. You can't just say that production values don't exist. Production value is the, the digital version of literacy. Like you have to be able to understand production value in order to be able to communicate well in a virtual space. And, and that's a permanent shift that's not going to go back anymore. And pastors are learning that real time, week to week right now. Uh, and you might say, well, I'm low tech, but even with low tech, you've got to be able to hold the camera a certain way. You've got to have good lighting. And you're communicating something specific by making those those choices that you're making. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting because in, so I serve um, a historic church and we've been since 1848. We're the mother church of Methodism in Savannah. Um, you know, we have roots that go all the way back to, to the early class meetings that John Wesley helped. Uh, start here in Savannah. So, and and that said, you know, I I give my lay people credit for this. Um, We're, we are a more progressive congregation and by progressive, I mean, open to new ideas. And Mm -hmm. so they have almost seamlessly gone into the online world. My struggle with coming back in person is we have zoom Sunday school for kids. We have a fairly decent live stream worship service that we're now going to take to a next level Sunday and put some pre-recorded stuff in. So now it's going to have to be a more dynamic live stream. We've got small groups up and going. We've actually launched three new small groups since this thing has started. My, first, my struggle is like our committees are meeting. Hold on yours. Do I want to come back as church when I'm operating at 25% capacity in person when we could keep doing this thing online you know, and, 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 and so the, the, then the quandary is when we do come back as a historic church to preserve that integrity and yet continue to innovate, you know, with electronics, with we're talking multi-camera systems now that we might want to invest in. How did, I mean, and maybe this is the Hegelian thing. How do church leaders begin to tackle these quandaries that, that we find ourselves in? You know, part of it is just a kind of a reading um, the context of your local space. I mean, this is such a basic answer, um, but we're dropping a survey this week to St. Andrew because we want to really see, like, if people are really dying to get together, then we'll create a solution where they can get together live. Our hunch is that, just like with the restaurant experience I had last weekend, that 80% of people or more are going to be like, no, I'm cool right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll just kind of keep doing what we're doing. So part of it is I want to be able to read that. Um, and then that, that buys us time then, because then it gives us, cause this is such a fluid thing as we talked about and it's changing day to day so much that from a messaging and a strategic point of view, a survey is a marketing tool as much as it is an informational tool, because it says to your people, um, I don't have enough information to make a good decision yet. And so I am going to gain inf- more information by listening to you. Uh, and through the survey, and then the more I can understand, the better decision I can make. And so it it respects your congregation and it buys you time uh, to be able to understand deeply what the right thing is to do, uh, which may become more clear over the next you know few weeks. It's so interesting you say that. I sent out a survey yesterday and oh, wow. decided yeah. ten question survey, fill it out. You're going to help us shape our our plans and 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 couple of things that I've already gathered from it. One is nobody's in a hurry to come back. Nobody's itching to come back. I mean, they're like, wait a minute. Does this mean you're opening soon? Because we don't want to do that. Um, The other thing that I've gathered is, you know, in the additional comments, I always put that at the end of a survey. That what you just said is, is so true, the marketing piece, because we've gotten a great response rate so far. Probably over 60, 70 people have responded in 24 hours. Over half 
probably had comments that sounded something like, thank you so much for asking. I really appreciate you putting so much thought into this. And thank you so much for, I mean, you don't know the answers, but I'm so grateful that you're trying to find them out. Like, so pastors, if you're listening and you have not put together a thoughtful survey, do that. Listen to your people and their concerns and all of that. Um, and then the only thing I'll add to that is one of my survey rules is I never put the answer maybe as an option because I feel like I don't want to encourage ambivalence. Just give me a clear cut yeah. some way or another. and We can we can create the ambivalence in, in between. But yeah, no, you're yeah. right. It is a marketing thing and it does give peace. I didn't anticipate that at all. Yeah, yeah. Because you're, you're framing the, like, for example, even something specific in the questions, if you were to ask, like one of the questions we're asking, ours is going to drop Thursday is what measures do you want to see in place before you're willing to come back? And so we talked about like uh, clergy wearing masks, ushers wearing masks, getting rid of bulletins, uh, cleaning the sanctuary between services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The questions you ask there set the narrative on what the expectations become about what we might do once we come back. And so you have to be careful about those kinds of things. So it's, it's as much a marketing tool as it is an informational tool because of that. <laughs> I know we're in the midst of crisis and there's a lot of tough feelings that we're struggling through, but where are you optimistic? Where are the opportunities? What are you excited about looking ahead? I read an article a while back then in Harvard business review that talked about innovation and it, it talked about two types of innovation. It said there's small I and big I. And it said, based on this was done, um, it was research done over several corporations uh, over a period of years of various sizes, various geographical locations around the U.S. And they said that 86% of corporations devote their energy to small I. And small I results in 14% increase uh, in annual growth at a, cor- at a corporation. Uh, only is kind of a lot of numbers here, so bear with me. Uh, only 14% of time is spent by companies on what they call big eye, but big eye resulted in 61% growth. So in other words, most of when we think of small eye, we usually think of ref, what I would call refinement innovation. Um, and that is just, you know, figuring out uh, a slightly better interface tweak on the next software update. You know, you're not fundamentally changing anything. You're just kind of trying to make the experience a little smoother, a little more refined. And that doesn't do a lot ultimately. And you have big eye and big eye is usually disruptive eye, but it's the kind that really changes and revolutionizes things. And every industry I think goes through periods of small eye and periods of big eye. You take airlines, for example, um, I've always been fascinated by by aviation history. Uh, went to seminary in Ohio, so I, I love the Wright brothers' story. And so there was two or three periods of huge big eye innovation that that happened. Of course, when things started, World War One was uh, was big, and then the jet engine was was a huge. When somebody invented the jet engine, I don't know who did that. That was a that revolutionized aviation. But since then, and that's been 60, 80 years, maybe now. Uh, aviation has been primarily all little eye. It's just how to make the, the, the jet engine experience a little bit better, more, more comfortable. When we in the church talk about innovation, we have, for the most part, have always been talking about small lie. Can we, how do we tweak worship just to make it a little bit better so maybe a few more people will want to attend? 
we are being forced right now into big eye innovation in the church in a way that I've not seen in my lifetime. Uh, and so I'm very excited about that as much as we have, um, problems, uh, as much as COVID is, is, um, just the, the, the damage it's doing both to human life and to, um, our economy. Uh, and that, I, I don't ever want to minimize that. Uh, I, I know people who have relatives who have, who have passed because of COVID. Um, but, but at the same time, the big eye that's resulting in what's going on, I think is going to launch a whole generation by generation. I literally mean 20 years. I think we are, we're on the cusp of a 20 year change, at least, um, of new flourishing and growth, uh, that could result from what's happening. Now that's, that's not to minimize. I mean, we had a lot of pain and suffering we're going through and we're going to continue to go through, but I think long-term beyond that, we have an opportunity to really see some great new things emerge. Yeah, and I think for me, the opportunity that lies ahead, you know, and, and I, ho- I just hope that we don't squander it. You know, the last time something this big happened in this country was 9-11, and, and church attendance soared for about three Sundays. And then it kind of went right back to, to, to the way it was, and there was no innovation that came from that. And I think because that had a geographic location, and we all yeah. felt for it, but we could say it's over there. This is among us. This is in our midst everywhere. And I think people are going to be, they already are, but we'll be even more spiritually hungry than ever. And I, I just hope that the church can find ways to do that big eye innovation to meet that spiritual hunger, because I don't think doing church like the 1950s, nobody's out there hungry saying, I sure wish I could go to my grandmother's church. Like yeah. it, this is a new age and a new way. Yes. Yes, it, it's interesting. You mentioned fifties church, and of course, that's kind of been a pastor's meme, right? Forever, like you know, church in the fifties. But if you think about it, that was the result. The fifties and sixties model of doing church emerged after World War II, which was the last time we had a national crisis. Because, as you mentioned, nine one one was something we all felt, but no, none, very few of us actually materially experienced nine eleven. You know, it didn't actually happen in a material way in our neighborhoods. So this is the first time we've had material change in our lives as a result of an event outside of our control since the rationing and, and, and the events of World War II that happened. And that led to the innovation that then established the modes of church that we have been living out of ever since. And so when we rebel against 50s church, that's because 50s church was an amazing new experience in the 1950s. And it is, <laughs> and it has been that way, and it set the standard by which we've had to to adjust ourselves to all this time since. So now here we are again. That's so fascinating. People, yeah, so maybe people will be talking about twenties church or thirties. You know, I've never thought know. of it that way because I've poked fun at the fifties church thing, but but coming as a result of World War Two. Um, and you look at things like how we innovated uh, children's ministries because every, we had all these babies we had to account for all of a sudden and children in churches like never before. And then we constructed churches to look, education buildings to look like schools with the, the long halls mm-hmm. and the individual class. Yeah, and I guess we have been doing little eye innovations ever since. That's, I never yeah, thought yeah, yeah. that to World War II. That's a fascinating point. Well, I'll make so, fun so, of the 1950s church so, class. <laughs> <laughs> so, so break that out some more, Ben. So the, the range that we all target as pastors, so you'll say like 25 to 45. Okay. So 1945 at the end of World War II, then those were people born from 1900 to 1920. And if you were born in 1900, 
you at the age of 15, uh, saw Lusitania crash. You saw these things happen in 1917. World War One began 1918. The Spanish flu. Uh, the Roaring Twenties happened, but then when you were 29 years old, the Great Depression hit. And then when you were 39, 40 years old, World War II happened. So the amount of suffering that a 45-year-old experienced uh, in 1945, they had already had a lifetime of that. And so all they wanted to do was to park it raise a kid and stop going through junk. Mm, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah and, and their kids all the way down to, to 25 years old who had gone through that war, they were done. What they wanted was sameness, normalcy, consistency, quiet. And so they built a whole world around that. And then this next generation comes along and says, ah, oh, this is terrible. We don't relate to this at all. Um, and so that's where those people were. And so now we are in a position that's going to have the same kind of impact. You know, it's moving forward. We're going to be talking about our children will be talking about 20s church and 30s churches. I'm convinced. That's fascinating because, you know, I, I have an eight year old and a three year old. And I guess my eight year old will, will remember this. Um, but one of the points I, I hope of comfort in this is um, I think they're young enough that what they're going to remember from this. Uh, and my three-year-old won't remember anything probably is that this was like two months that we had all the family time they could ever ask for that we had movie nights every night that we ate popcorn whenever we wanted, you know, that we stayed up late and, and, and just went on daily walks. And I guess there's some comfort in that, you know, and as parents who may be listening to just being mindful of that emotional health at home and, um, Mm -hmm. and children are so durable. We, We don't give them enough credit for being durable. Um, but no, that's, that's fascinating to, to think about that. And then how that could affect the church in the next 20 years will be, I guess we'll be telling that story. Um, I'll send you a link, Ben. Uh, I just read this morning. Um, so I, I, I'll give you a little, um, I don't know if this is helpful to your readers or not. Um, but one of these I do that helps my, my ability to innovate is I use an app called Feedly. I don't know if I talked about this in January, I think, but uh, I, I put about, it's an aggregator. So I'll put in 40, 50, 60 websites in there and I'll try to find as many sources as I can. And then every morning as part of my morning routine, in addition to reading scripture, I'll open up Feedly and, um, and just kind of look and see what is being written about. And this morning in my Feedly, I read an article from Wharton Business School, which is uh, the business school at University of Pennsylvania, talking about cultural changes that are going to happen as a, as a result of COVID. Um, and one of the things I love, love from the articles, it talked about how business leaders are going to be healthcare leaders moving forward. I thought that was fascinating. And you think about the perspective of, of a clergy person in that role. Um, you could say, yeah, we're, we've been always concerned with spiritual health as well as, in fact, that's maybe more so part of the identity of a, of a pastor, more so than a business leader. Um, but those things have been seen as separate expertise in the past, and now they're going to become one of the same is what the Wharton article was predicting. Mm. Um, so if you're going to be leading people, you, it's more of a holistic understanding, isn't it? Like you, you, you're going to be care, caring for the organization, but caring for the individual health of the individuals who are having. Wow, what an opportunity for us to begin to, to have influence and to shape what that looks like. If, if business people are starting to ask what more holistic questions of health, uh, in relationship to how they run their businesses for the first time. That's something we, the church, can speak to. And isn't isn't that a fascinating opportunity to create cultures of discipleship in ways that maybe we have not done well enough or not done fully enough? 
you know, because we just think about that one spiritual aspect and, and we measure it by, you know, do they come to church every Sunday? And, and now, you know, we're, we're not able to physically be here. So we, we've got to, we've got to curate, help curate your discipleship from afar. And then when you're back, there are all these, that's a fascinating opportunity to be able to really impact people's lives in a holistic way. Yeah. And if, and if your theology is, um, you know, Hugh and I, we come from Western background, obviously. And so we've got this kind of whole life approach, right? This kind of whole sanctification approach. Uh, so we see those things as merging together, but sometimes I don't think our practices reflect our theology very well. Uh, you know, so people like we can, we can say we believe that, but if you ask a lay person, if we really, if they think we're concerned about the whole self, the whole individual, then I'm not sure what they would say. Mm. But but now we have an opportunity, you know, as a result of that, to be able to kind of you know, demonstrate in very real ways that we're concerned for, for people's whole selves, um, you know, as we do ministry. That's, that's a fascinating angle. Um, we've come kind of to the end of our time, but I want to have a little fun with you, and then I want to help promote um, you and some of your incredible work so more people can read it. Um, but I always like to do with uh, people I interview a, a quick lightning round so folks can get to know you outside of, you know, your, your, main, your main shtick here. So okay. I've got a couple questions. You have no more than 10 seconds to answer each one. So no, there's no long-winded answers. It's quick stuff. Okay, you ready? Okay, all right. I'm ready. All right. Favorite place to vacation, mountains, lakes, or beach? Hawaii, Hawaii. It has all three of the above. Ah, <laughs> that's that synthesis piece. That's that Hegelian piece. I like it. All right, Hawaii got all the above. Um, <laughs> the last book you read and loved? I'm just about to wrap up Thunderstruck by Eric Larson, who is a historian uh, who writes narrative nonfiction, and he's writing about uh, a murder mystery in London in 1910. Very good stuff. Very good. Eric Larson's wonderful. Um, finally, if you were not doing what you're doing right now, what's what vocation would you be in? Meteorologist. Really? Yeah, I don't know why. I've just always been fascinated by it. I used to chase tornadoes when I was in, uh, uh, I worked in a CBS affiliate in West Texas and undergraduate. Okay, you may win the prize now. I've played this game with many people. I've played it with Adam Hamilton. I've played it with uh, Bishop Ken Carter, with George Acevedo. And Carter had the prize because he hit me all of a sudden with he'd be, he would either be a country music songwriter or he would be a professional baseball scout. And I was like, that's left field for you. But you may be the most left field of all, a meteorologist. Fascinating. That's you see really it in my uh, my stat nerd stuff about the the, the growing churches list. You know, it's uh, yeah, that is cool <laughs> stuff. Well, we've come to the end of our time. I do want to let listeners know that we are going to put a link to Lynn's uh, Amazon authors page in the show notes, and we'll also put a link to his uh, wonderful blog, which is lynnwilson.us. Uh, but we'll have links to that in the show notes. We encourage you to go and. Um, just find the treasure trove of writings that, that Lynn has got out there. And Lynn, we're grateful for your time. Thank you for taking this time out to, uh, to talk creativity and innovation with us. Appreciate you, Ben. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you. And we'll see y'all next time on Faith Revisited Podcast.